So the reading is from Daniel 1, starting at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Great. Um, and if you do have a Bible in front of you, um, it'd be great just to have that, uh, that passage open. Um, as Mark mentioned, over the next two weeks, we're going to be spending some time in the opening two chapters of Daniel. And it's a book which feels very relevant to us as 21st century Christians working in Westminster. Um, but before we dive into today's passage, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at Daniel chapter one together. Please enable me to teach it faithfully and clearly and give all of us ears to hear and soft hearts that are ready to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So the situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in in Babylon is actually very similar to the situation that we find ourselves in as Christians in London. A city that often feels hostile to God and where it might appear that God has been defeated and ideologies like atheism, pluralism and secularism have won. A city where the prevailing narrative is that God probably doesn't exist, but even if he does, there's so many different perspectives that no one way can be right. So it's best to keep our beliefs private and out of public square. Welcome to Babylon, or should I say London? Our tale begins at a time of crisis. It's 605 BC, and the city of Jerusalem is under siege by the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, leader of Babylon, the superpower of the age. As part of this, the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's men have been carried off to Babylon, verse one to two. And to the casual observer, it appears that God has well and truly lost. Having carried off the best and the brightest, Nebuchadnezzar launches a very clever strategy of cultural assimilation to turn them into Babylonians. So my first of two points, living in Babylon, there will be pressure to assimilate. Arriving in Babylon, the future leaders are put onto a fast track program into the King's service, which involves three years of training at King's College Babylon. But this was no mere leadership development program. It was a clever attempt to mold their worldview, win their emotional loyalty, and to shape their identity. The method was full immersion. From verse four, we see the plan to shape their worldview by teaching them the language and literature of the Babylonians, by reading the Babylonian equivalents of Shakespeare and Carol Ann Duffy, verse four, these students were having their worldview molded by the cultural values of Babylon, values not dissimilar to the plural secular values of today. In verse five, the king also sought their emotional loyalty by providing them with food and wine from his own table. Considering the size of his empire, we can presume that this would have been extremely high-end cuisine. And then to really seal the deal, the Israelites were given new names, verse seven. The name change was particularly striking as it aimed to give them a whole new identity, seeking to erase any memory of the Lord they had once served. Daniel, which means God is my judge, Hananiah, which means God has been gracious, Mishael, which means none is like God, and Azariah, which means God has helped, were instead all given names of Babylonian gods, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we've grown up in this country, we might not feel like foreigners in London who've had to assimilate to British culture. But if we're Christians, do we realize that the world around us seeks to shape our worldview, gain our emotional loyalty and challenge our identity every day? Whenever we watch a film, read a news article, scroll through social media, we aren't objectively looking at neutral worldview. There's no such thing but we're engaging with a culture that seeks to shape us. Do we ever take a step back to consider what is most shaping how we see the world? And whilst we may not eat silver service cuisine every day in the Palace of Westminster, working in Parliament certainly has plenty of perks 
that could draw our emotional loyalty away from Christ. Whether it's exposure to powerful and interesting people who we know it would be useful to be noticed by, or opportunities for status and influence that might cause us to do whatever it takes to show that we fit in. We live in a city that seeks to shape our worldview, win our hearts, and often seems to want to wipe God from the picture. But let's remember our true identity. We're Christians living in Christ. We're his adopted children, fully forgiven and dearly loved. The Babylonians changed the names of Daniel and his friends, but they didn't change their true identity as God's people. Likewise, our job title or success on the career ladder isn't what ultimately defines us. Our identity in Christ is fixed, whatever position we reach in Parliament. This means we can keep living for him, no matter how difficult it will sometimes feel. By this stage in Daniel, with the world's agenda set against God's agenda, it appears to all intents and purposes that Nebuchadnezzar has won against God and his people. And yet, as we look at the passage more closely, we realise that things were not quite as they seemed on the surface. In fact, in verse 2, we see that it was God who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And later in verse 9 and 17, we see it was God who caused favour to be shown to Daniel and enabled Daniel and his friends to be successful. There seems to be no doubt in Daniel's mind that even in a hostile world, God was in charge and was still the one calling the shots. It's very clear that despite appearances, God was still ruling, and the same is true today. And knowing this, Daniel resolved to take a stand as one of God's people and show where his true allegiance lay. We'll see that his example is one we need as Christians living in the equivalent of Babylon today. So my second point, as those living in Babylon resolved to take a stand. Daniel was clear he needed a strategy to resist total assimilation. So he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way, verse eight. And notice when he did this, it was right from day one. He wasn't going to allow himself to just drift into compromise. He knew he needed people to be clear where his loyalty lay immediately. But before we look at what Daniel said no to, it's worth pausing for a moment to see what he was willing to say yes to. He said yes to a name change, yes to a paid education, yes to a political career, and even yes to working for someone who was actively opposed to God. Because he knew God was ruling, he was willing to actively engage in the world and to seek to be as positive an influence as he could be. And the same should be true for us. It's right for us to care about the economy, the environment, the flourishing of our schools and communities, knowing God rules, nothing is outside of his sphere of concern. It's also worth noting that Daniel didn't retreat into some Christian ghetto or holy huddle, which could be a danger for some Christians. Be encouraged, it is right and good for us to engage in politics as Christians. But whilst God didn't expect us to say no, to, doesn't expect us to say no to everything, he does expect us to live distinctively 
and for it to be very clear where our true allegiance lies. So let's get back to Daniel's decision to say no to defiling himself with the royal food and wine. What was that about? It's probably not that it was deemed unclean under Jewish food laws, as the wine wouldn't have been unclean. It's also probably not that it had been sacrificed to pagan gods, as otherwise he would have avoided the, veg the vegetables too. As much as vegetarians might like it, it's probably not that he'd become an early advocate of vegetarianism. In one sense, it was an arbitrary line, but in another sense, it was a critical juncture for Daniel. He knew that if he didn't draw the line here, he was effectively giving himself over to the king and his values. He knew that if he didn't draw the line here, he was effectively getting into bed with the king. He knew he needed to align himself with God and make his loyalty public before it was too late. And this wouldn't have been without risk. There is no doubt that it required immense courage. He was a young man in a foreign country who was basically a nobody at the time, who was daring to question the king's orders. He was potentially risking everything, his fast track career, his privileges, rewards and reputation. And we see from the king's official, he really is putting his neck on the block, verse 10. So where does he get the courage to take such a risk? It's because he knew God was in charge, that God was ruling, that he could take a stand and trust God with the results. So what does this mean for us? Well, we also need to take a stand by drawing a line, even if it feels hard to do. Whilst where we draw the line may differ between us, the need to make it clear that our primary loyalty to God is to God is essential. This may mean risking a friendship, it may mean going against the party line or risking out on a job promotion. It may mean choosing to behave in a way that's countercultural and different to the way our colleagues act. The important thing is less where we take the stand, but more that we do take a stand. Daniel was under pressure to fit in and needed to make it obvious he wasn't a Babylonian, but belonged to God. As Christians today, we live under similar pressures to conform and need to make it clear that we're Christians living for another world. As 1 Peter reminds us, we're foreigners and exiles in the world and therefore need to abstain from sinful desires that war against our soul. So the question is, have you drawn a line? If you're honest with yourself, would your friends and colleagues see anything different about your beliefs and priorities? And if you haven't drawn a line, where might you need to draw it? And are we willing to do it? If Daniel hadn't drawn the line here on a fairly arbitrary matter, he most certainly wouldn't have drawn the line later when the decision was so much starker, either stop praying to God or face death in a lion's den, which we can read about in Daniel chapter six. And it's the same for us. If we're not willing to take a stand on the small things, we're unlikely to be able to stand and not compromise later when a tougher choice comes our way. Our role as Christians is to be faithful and to trust God with the rest. Daniel's trust in God and willingness to pledge his allegiance to him led him to be greatly blessed. And at the end of the passage, we see Daniel and his friends being given the ability to outperform all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom, verse 19. And the chapter ends by signposting 
that Daniel's legacy lived on far beyond that of the Babylonian dynasty, verse 21. It's important to say that whilst God bestowed favour on Daniel's, these, these verses aren't promising that if we remain faithful to God, we're guaranteed earthly success here and now. There are plenty of examples where that isn't the case. In fact, we only need to look at our Lord Jesus, the most faithful and distinctive man who ever lived, to see that faithfulness to God doesn't always bring success in this life. Jesus's faithfulness led to derision, opposition, open hostility and rejection. Jesus's resolution to stand led him to the cross where he faced an excruciating criminal's death, being cut off from God so that people like you and me could receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Like Daniel, because Jesus knew that God ruled, he chose to stand, pledging his allegiance to his father and his father's will. And yet, whilst these verses are no guarantee of earthly blessing and success, they do provide the picture of the ultimate eternal reality. The fact that if we pledge our allegiance to the Lord Jesus and stand for him, trusting in his death on the cross for us, we will ultimately be blessed as we get to spend eternity with King Jesus forever. If we stand with the Lord Jesus now, we will one day be part of a heavenly kingdom and dynasty that lasts forever. So with this in mind, let's resist the tactics of Babylon to assimilate and instead resolve to take a stand for God, knowing that he really does rule. Despite appearances, God really is at work and will bring about his purposes and plan. Amen.